Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello there. This is Jason Carty. This is Stephen Cockroft. From the podcast Nothing Is Real. It was all the way back in January 2019 when Disney first announced that Academy Award winner Peter Jackson, he of Lord of the Rings, would be digitally restoring 60 hours of never-before-seen footage and over 140 hours of audio from the Beatles' Let It Be get-back sessions in 1969. The end result is an immersive, vivid, intricate and joyful piece of work, The Beatles Get Back, a mesmerising three-part docuseries that will be streaming exclusively on Disney Plus starting Thursday, November 25th. Now, Stephen, we've been lucky enough to see a preview of The Beatles Get Back uh, from Disney Plus. It's very good. It's very good. <laughs> it's very, very it's good. very, very good. And it really delivers what fans wanted, which is a huge, immersive, colourful, deeply involving an intricate and detailed portrait of this month in the Beatles' lives. It is. I mean, I think what it does, it just contextualises what we already know from from other sources, from the original Let It Be film, from the Let It Be box set. It just puts all of that into context. Yeah, and it flies by. It's, it's, it's mainly never-before-seen footage. Even the little bits and pieces that are out there already, they're shot from different angles. Yep. They sound different. They look different. They feel different. They're in a different context. It's a game-changer if you're a Beatles fan. It absolutely is. And I think, as you know, we, we, we've seen the clips and you're focusing on the visuals, but the audio is spectacular as well. I mean, it, what they've been able to do there. It's a technical tour de force, but it also tells a very human story about the four most famous guys in the world trying to do an incredibly Herculean task of writing and recording a brand new album of 14 songs and performing it in front of a live TV studio audience in a fortnight. We could do that. Well, you know, we can vaguely do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is. You start from the premise that uh, this is a crazy thing. This is a crazy idea that they've set themselves this this task. And uh, as much as it's about the the music and you can see songs coming together, it's also about the interrelationships within the band and, and how they interact with each other. And more interestingly, almost, is how they interact with the people around them. Yeah, it's fantastic. And folks, you can watch The Beatles Get Back, this amazing three-part event streaming exclusively on Disney+. Plus. The first episode will be released on Thursday, November the 25th, the second episode on Friday the 26th, and the third and final episode on Saturday the 27th of November, only on Disney+. Plus. If you don't have Disney+, Plus, you can subscribe on DisneyPlus.com. That's DisneyPlus.com. And now, on with the show. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name's Jason Carty. My name's Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin in front of an audience. Yeah. Oh, wow. 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 
Amazing. Oh, wait, amazing. Where did they come from? I've no for idea. the second it's, time. It's your living room. <laughs> Uh, for the second time in the style of Cheers, we're live in front of a studio audience for the first time since the last time in November 2019. And despite the best efforts of the universe over the past two years to stop us from ever doing this again, here we are as part of the Dublin Beatles Festival with thanks to Stephen Kennedy, the organiser. Yeah, big, big up to Stephen. And, uh, and we've been moved up to the main room, Stephen. We're actually playing the Workmans. That's very good. Ooh, I know. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> Which is great. Um, now, the last time out, we tackled the subject of Paul versus George. And I think it's fair to say, out of all the episodes we've done, that one kind of has a life of its own. That uh, two years later, people keep discovering it. And more than any other topic that we've covered, it's one where people seem to reach out. It normally goes on the pattern of... Uh, we get these lovely messages that say, I've just started listening to your podcast. And then about two weeks later, they say, I've just reached Paul versus George and one of you must die. It's kind uh, yeah. of general yeah. take, it's, I guess. It's, uh, we, we, we didn't expect it to have a, that kind of afterlife. But, no. uh, or the threats or the, <laughs> yeah. Or that, you know, the sort of the, the crack element. I, th- really. I think the problem was that George came out so far ahead uh, on that night that well, uh, I don't know. Um, so we we did try and pull a couple of ideas together. We did think about Ringo versus John, but that's just unfair on John. Recent, really, to yeah, I think so. To actually run so. that one, uh, Beatles versus other groups. That's also unfair. But this time around, in the spirit of the festival we are at, we are going to look at the Beatles in Ireland or the Beatles and Ireland. And Stephen, I'm going to start by saying I generally try and stay away from conspiracy theories and the like, but. I think that uh, we need to break once and for all the myth that the Beatles are from Liverpool, because the more I look at this, I think the Beatles are an Irish band, and the truth is out there. Yeah? I think so. I think so. I think so. We've done the research. We, we have. I've done the research. And if anything, you know, if the crowd says it, it must be true. It must be if true. If we've learned anything, that angry mobs can really... Uh, yeah, sway the day. Absolutely. They can really have... So we, we've got a couple of different things that we're going to talk about over the next little while to try and make the case. And we might start by a little bit of audio mm-hmm. to see what the Beatles have to say about it themselves. So this is from their arrival at Dublin. Well, I'm very well. Not so bad. Good. How are you? We've got a tour of Guinness's Brewery organised. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's great to be here in Ireland. John Lennon here. Oh, how do you do? How are you? John Lennon, Paul McCartney. How you? Ringo Starr. I don't you'd be here. An Irish man here, George Harrison. Hey, listen, we're all Irish. So, let's talk about their lineage, first of all. Yes. Uh, which Beatles shall we start with? Um, well, your team, Paul. So yes. let's start with George. <laughs> no, start with start with Paul. Start with Paul. Okay. Start with Paul. So Paul does have Irish lineage, doesn't he? He has ancestry on both sides of his he family. He does. His we have to go back to his his grandparents. So his maternal grandfather was born in Ireland. Uh, his uh, great grandfather was also born uh, in Ireland, um, and uh, his maternal grandfather was born in. You're going to have to pronounce that for me. Uh, Tully Namalro in County Monaghan. That wasn't even close. But I yeah, don't he, think so, so he's from County Monaghan. Um, <laughs> so he, he, his family emigrated uh, at the, the sort of two generations back from yeah. Ireland uh, to England and settled in Liverpool. And those, that lineage is Catholic and Protestant. Which it is. Of... It's a mixed. It's a mixed background. Um, his maternal grandfather was Catholic, and his paternal grandfather was uh, Protestant. And it is noticeable, like there's an absence of religion in the Beatles. Really, like the... there is. Yeah. For yeah, yeah. Like when they they talk about their their kind of teenage lives. They were never sort of particularly browbeaten into following any of that kind of no. path. Um, so, uh, but I think, to all seriousness, uh, the most Irish Beatle is George. Yes, I mean, he, he is introduced as he, literally as he steps off the, the, the plane onto Irish soil, it's like, here's the Irish Beatle. So he's been claimed <laughs> from, from, from day one. 
Um, and I think the the issue was that uh, the reporter goes on to say, uh, you know, I think I think I think uh, somebody somebody came and spoke to you and recognised you, and you're Irish. And George has to say, no, that was actually my mum. That's my mother. She flew over the day before, so it's not that, you know, but he, he had an extensive Irish family uh, in Dublin, on the north side of Dublin. Yeah, and he's somebody who had spent time in Ireland before the Beatles broke through to to come over professionally. Yeah, they, he, he would come over uh, with his mother primarily uh, on holiday to visit uh, cousins, and uh, his uh, family name is French, yeah. spelt with two Fs. Yes. Is that, is that strange to you? Well, that seems strange to me. No, it's not strange to me. No? no okay. Strange for anyone? No? No, two Fs. Okay. <laughs> for French. Just two Fs. <laughs> just write that down. Two That's time. important. Um, yeah, so there's, 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 a, there's a great book. I'm just going to give this book a plug. Oh, yeah. Wave it about there. So I don't know if anybody has this book uh, by uh, Michael Lynch and Damien Smith, The Beatles in Ireland. Anybody got this? No? Great. So we can, we can pass it all off as our own. Yes, you've researched it all yourself. Um, yeah, he does have a... It's a they, they, the French family came from Wexford, which I think is a pretty common name, actually, down in, in, in the southeast. And uh, he did come from a, an Irish Catholic family on his mother's side. Um, now, the interesting thing is that his grandparents never married. Yes. And that might have implications. Well, this, this is something that uh, George is notoriously curmudgeonly and really? private. My goodness. I know. I've watched know. eight hours of the George Harrison curmudgeon show this week. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> so George, George is, is notoriously private and uh, really has a, a slightly odd relationship with, with fandom. Yeah. Um, and uh, Mark Lewison um, in his book sort of touches on this and that possibly this idea that his grandparents never married was a sort of shameful thing in the family and he suggests that this is sort of the distrust of nosy neighbours and this was a secret that had to be kept from people and that uh, he that, that he didn't like people prying into his personal life and it, it sort of comes from this secret that the family were uh, which maybe seems odd from, well, from this remove but not really I mean I think there is and maybe the audience might want to think I think there is an Irish thing about families with secrets yeah, you all know what I'm on about. Uh, where, you know, and specifically when I say Irish thing, I mean Catholic thing. And uh, where, you know, oh, you know, that kind of thing of grandparents not being married. Yeah. And I certainly know of families where, you know, extended members went off to England and all that kind of stuff. That's well, not see, I, 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 I come from the North, which is a very liberal Presbyterian, well-known. Sure, for sure. The, that, yeah. that, so the, these, yeah. these things are not really an yeah. issue up there at all. Playgrounds on a Sunday? Yeah, well, no playgrounds on a Sunday. No playgrounds on a Sunday, but, uh, obviously, yeah. but the rest. The rest of it's all absolutely fine. Um, yeah, and George used to visit Ireland as a kid, and so there's a famous uh, picture, which I'm sure many people here would be aware of uh, in the room here, but maybe not in the world at large, uh, which was taken of George when he was in holiday, on holidays in Dublin um, in the early 50s, which is taken by a man called Arthur Fields, who in recent years has been uh, celebrated. Uh, there's a website, www.manonbridge.ie. And Arthur Fields was a street photographer. People know who I'm talking about here, possibly. Um, but for people who don't, he was a street photographer who, uh, from the 1930s up until the 1980s, would stand on O'Connell Bridge, which is a main thoroughfare bridge in the middle of Dublin, uh, which separates the north and south of the city. Uh, I'm just saying that for facts. That's not... Uh, to, uh, and he would take pictures of people and get them to buy them like a tourist thing. Just get people randomly. To, yeah, just randomly say, I've taken your photo. Would you like a memento of your visit to Dublin? See, when I do that, it doesn't work that way. Well, no, you need a, a license okay. uh, or something. Um, and there has been a, a, a goal recently to try and crowdsource as many 
many of Arthur's pictures as possible. It's estimated he took over 180,000 pictures in the 50-odd years that he was on the streets in Dublin taking pictures of passers-by. But there is a very uh, famous picture of George and his mum Louise and his brother Pete taken in the early 50s. And we're not able to project it here today. But George, again, has the kind of look of somebody who is wondering, what the hell are you doing? Why are you taking my picture? Yeah, even then. Yeah. But it's, 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 <laughs> it's, it's, insane that there's a picture of George Harrison on the bridge, just a random snap. But it's nice, isn't it? Like, you kind of think if he took 182,000 pictures, there must be some chance that he was going to pick somebody up. Famous. Somebody famous. I somebody suppose. from the future. Um, I, I wonder, was Arthur saying, hey, why don't you do the show in Tunisia? That's probably what Arthur was saying to him at the time. Maybe not. I don't know. That's a get-back reference. Um, then we move on to John Lennon, who was never really totally sure of his Irish lineage. No, but he, he, he was the one that probably, despite being unsure, mm. uh, was most vocal in his claim to Irish lineage. So his, his father uh, was a merchant seaman who claimed Irish descent. And uh, I have a quote from John. He says, I'm a quarter Irish or half Irish or something. <laughs> and long, long before the Northern Irish trouble started, I told Yoko, that's where we're going to retire. And I took her to Ireland. We went around Ireland a bit and we stayed in Ireland and we've had a sort of second honeymoon there. So I was completely involved in Ireland. He was completely involved. Completely involved. Completely involved <laughs> completely, in Ireland. You know. um, so uh, there is, a, there is a, a sort of, can we mention Julia? Lennon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, John's mother, Julia, there was a bomb, an IRA bomb on the 3rd of May, 1939, uh, where she worked as an usherette in the Trocadero Cinema in Liverpool. And uh, uh, she was caught up in that. So hmm. he was completely involved in Ireland. Completely involved. Uh, the least Irish uh, Beatle is yeah. Richard Starkey, Ringo Starr. Yes. Uh, who says he might, uh, Mark Lewis in a stage, he might have some family that goes back to County Mayo, um, but that's about all we know. Except that mm-hmm. Ringo was briefly resident in Dublin in 1963. Yeah, and that's but a bit we, of foreshadowing. Maybe we'll, we'll come, maybe come back on to, that to that in a moment. So, so if we were to organise the Beatles in Irishness, I, I think George, it goes George, Paul, John, Ringo. I think so. And that's how we should list them from now on, forevermore. Yes. The yes. Fab Four, George, Paul, John and Ringo. It rolls off Can the Can we put that by decree? Everyone agreed? Yeah. Right. It's decided. Um, let's have another listen to the Beatles talking about their Irish backgrounds. Uh, about your, your Irish backgrounds. Yeah. I think we've all got a bit. Except, you know, high me on the Irish backgrounds we're on. Irish, is an Irish I think I saw. One, I think I saw you being greeted by uh, by somebody outside. No, no, that no, was George. Me, that was me. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, actually, it was um, my mother, <laughs> who was. She came over here, you know, because she's got hundreds of cousins and relatives over here, and then she hasn't seen us for weeks anyway because we've been away. So she's come to see the show and to see her cousins and. One of the cousins was here with her. Your mother has to come to Ireland to see you. Yeah. <laughs> well, this in a way typifies the kind of uh, the kind of extraordinary upset that must occur in your in your let us say your private lives. Do you get home at all? People think of the Beatles in Ireland. We need to talk about the Irish concerts. Even the the Dublin Beatles Festival, which we're at today, commemorates. Yeah. Uh, it's usually on the anniversary of the, uh, the 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 Beatles' sole visit to Dublin. Although they had two visits to Belfast, and we'll come back to that. But they they first played uh, on the island of Ireland on the seventh of November, nineteen sixty three, and that's a very well documented event. It is, but they nearly played 
in Drogheda first. Really? Yes, yes. You haven't got the updated notes. I have not got the updated notes. Let's <laughs> <laughs> um, well, all learn you, together. I, I sent you the updated notes. <laughs> um, yeah, this is, this is something I, I, I discovered. Uh, a chap called Jerry Murphy, who is a promoter in Drogheda. Mm-hmm. In February 1963, he got in touch with Brian Epstein and said, can I get, get your band, that band you have, the Beatles I've heard a little bit about, could they come over and play in Drogheda? And um, Brian Epstein said, uh, yes, absolutely, that will cost you £1,000, which would have been £21,000 in mm. 2021. So that was a little bit outside yep. uh, Jerry's budget. But if Jerry had had £1,000, we would be sitting in Drogheda today. Well, well, in February. Would we, though? Well, no, maybe not. Maybe not. Um, so in the end, uh, the, the Beatles uh, did two concerts on the one day in Dublin's Adelphi Cinema, uh, each one with a capacity crowd of 2,304 people. Anybody here today at that gig, by any chance? Hey, cool. Right, well done. Excellent. Why are we, why are we why saying are we anything? We why should, are we talking? We should just cede the stage. <laughs> yes. to, uh, did you enjoy the gig? There you go. Oh, that's amazing. We, we'd be asking later if you part. part oh. <laughs> we'd be asking later if uh, they participated in the riot. Yes, there was a riot on the street. Um, so yes, <laughs> arrest that woman. <laughs> Um, so, so they obviously flew from you know London to Dublin. We have footage and photographs of them at Dublin Airport. Yes, uh, and they 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 were by this stage. This was they were used to being greeted at airports and fans yeah. and Beatlemania was sort of taking off. This was this was uh, November '63. Their first album was out. The second album with the Beatles had not yet yep. arrived, so that that was still a few weeks off. Um, but there was that sort of media buzz about them, and it was they were interviewed by Frank Hall. Now that's not a name that I know, but I would have been known maybe on, familiar on with Frank broadcasting Hall. at the time. Um, and uh, was the show called In Town? There was a little interview. Broke. I, I I didn't watch it at the time, Stephen, <laughs> for one particular reason. But there were how many fans? Four hundred <laughs> fans turned up at the airport, which is not bad. Not bad. Uh, for, for, uh, but you want to talk about the signs at the airport? Well, the signs, well, they, these are the JFK signs. These are the welcome to Dublin. Oh, which ones are they now? Uh, the, the, at the airport, it was like welcome to Dublin, JFK, and English go home. Well, English, no, English <laughs> go home is actually at JFK. Oh, well, that was a JFK. That was at JFK. Oh, right. Oh, okay. Sorry, well, we've gone off on a tangent. But if you watch the footage of the Beatles arriving at JFK, there's one lone sign that says England get out of Ireland. And once you notice it, you see it all the time whenever that newsreel footage runs over and over again. So it's like, hey, we love you, Ringo. Hey, everything's great. And then it just says England get out of Ireland. Somebody went all the way to JFK just to With wave sign. a sign that said England get out of Ireland. So they took that on as hand luggage? Or would that have been? <laughs> I don't know. I, I assume it's just uh, I don't know. I, I it, it, what happens in New York uh, stays in New York. So no, no, no. There was none of that kind of behaviour down in Dublin. Okay, I'm sorry, I, don't I, what I, you're I, I completely to misunderstood. The whole cross-border there. initiative of this podcast has been thrown into doubt. <laughs> it's shocking, shocking. I say. Um, so from the airport, they go off to the Gresham Hotel which is just up the road from where we are now, and they arrive at the Adelphi about 1pm, and uh, there's a number of reporters at the venue there, and they, they, they check out the stage in the auditorium, but there isn't really any kind of sound check or rehearsal, they just sort of look around. Yeah, we had more of a sound check today than the, 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 Beatles, the Beatles had, um, and it was uh, the, the Harry Lush 
it's fabulously named Harry, Harry Lush was the uh, manager of the Adelphi so he, he's responsible sort of escorting them uh, around uh, Town basically and looking after them while they're in the cinema and they seem to sort of effectively be trapped in cinema mm. um, both before the gig and then in between and after the gigs um, but yeah. they at, at this point this was their sort of autumn tour and they're performing uh, 10 songs so that's all you heard um, and those songs were I Saw Her Standing There From Me To You All My Loving You Really Got A Hold Of Me Roll Over Beethoven Boys Till There Was You She Loves You Money and Twist and Shout. That's four original songs. That yeah. was all you got. And three of those are the first three songs. So then there's yeah, three originals the and then seven songs, six of which are covers. Uh, and they play the same set for both sessions. So they finish the first show and the crowd just, uh, you know, they couldn't get off the stage. The whole, the whole story of the Beatles in Dublin is them being trapped. Trapped in the Adelphi, yeah. trapped at the back of the Adelphi, trapped in the Gresham. Yes, then trapped, trapped in, in a van. Yes, yeah. and all that kind of thing. Yeah. So, so they finish, and I, I don't know if people who are here with the, with the first gig or the second gig, but basically the crowd supposedly just stays put. They can't get the Beatles off the stage. They can't get the crowd out. There's two and a half thousand people outside trying to get in, and uh, it doesn't go well. No. The police arrive, and the crowds kind of spill out onto O'Connell Street, and apparently windows were broken in Cleary's. There was a trail of damage in O'Connell Street, and uh, a car was overturned and set on fire. Yeah. So just another Saturday night. <laughs> well, it reminded me... Was it a Saturday reminded, night? Well, I don't know. It reminded me of Slane. Was Anybody it, it at Slane Thursday? in 1984? <laughs> Yeah, see, it was just like Slane in 1984. That was the Stones? Dylan. Oh, the Dylan, Dylan. yes. Yeah. I remember my granddad telling me about that. <laughs> um, so they ended up getting help from uh, the independent newspaper who give them a van. They're, they're the van people who supply the van to get them the huge distance from the Adelphi to the to Gresham, the Gresham. Yeah. which is uh, about, I don't know, 300 metres at a push. So it says here, we asked the independent newspaper to help out. This is Harry Lush speaking. They said the easiest thing would be to use one of their vans so the boys could walk up the stairs, jump into the van and be taken across the street to the Gresham. It said the Beatles were all so nice, courteous and answered all the questions. They had respect for their seniors. Mm. And Called you sir. I'd like that. Well, no, no joke. My dad says he saw them get into the van, and I've asked him repeatedly what it was like, and he said they got into a van. That's kind of the, that's kind of the end of the story. I'm like, oh, okay. We should, have, we should have got him here today to, the, the, to, to give to us honest, an I've given you more information in that sentence oh, okay. than, than you would have gotten at the time. And I think the, the thing that's great is that the Adelphi was preserved as a landmark and is still a lovely theatre today. Isn't that right? That's, that's it. It's lovely. <laughs> no, uh, the Adelphi closed. We'll be saying this a lot in this episode. Uh, this venue closed in November. 1995 and was demolished and now it's a car park. Yes, and don't look for it. It's not there anymore. That's the recurring theme of a lot of things we're going to be talking about today. Um, interestingly, in the party at the time for the Dublin Belfast gig was uh, Alan Owen, mm -hmm. who was there on a three-week, or sorry, a three-day visit to join the tour in order to decide what he was going to write for A Hard Day's Night, because they had this contract to do A Hard Day's Night, but there wasn't really any decision about what it was going to be like or about, or was it going to be a documentary, or what it was going to that's right. So they, this this was the, the thing in those days was really you know you have a short lived pop phenomenon. You put them you, in a recording studio. You release a few records, and then you get an exploitation film out. And uh, Alan Owen was a was a playwright with Irish with an Irish background mm. or uh, connection himself. He has a mum of Irish descent. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he was really there to get a feel for what the Beatles were doing. Uh, what what 
their life was like at the time. And essentially, A Hard Day's Night, I think, just, you know, it's this idea. At one point, they say in the film, you're in a room, you're in a car, you're on a train, you're on a stage, you're in a room. And that was what their life had become. And so so the the, the three-day research period is really takes place in Ireland. So yeah. that, that's, again, that's important. This is Irish-based, Hard Day's Night. It's an Irish film. It's they might as Irish well have film. filmed it in Dublin. No, but it's an Irish film. Yeah, I think that's, I think in that's all the only reason. Um, reports at the time says, uh, from the Record Mirror reporter Peter J. Dublin was fantastic. The fans there really do go mad. I've heard that. Uh, hey. Girls who fainted in the crowds outside the theatre were carried into their seats by attendants outside. There was the biggest riot yet. It's a fact that cars were overturned and the police had to make several arrests inside it was incredible for noise and appreciation and it talks about how Alan Owen was part of the, the party as well there is a plaque there uh, on the Delphi car park Barnett's car park and we, which kind of leads us into another diversion of someone we need to talk about Gay Byrne yes yes so uh you know, we have a global audience uh, thankfully but I'm sure everybody in the room here knows who Gay Byrne is yeah. So, uh, Gay Byrne uh, unveiled the plaque um, uh, that it currently resides at the site of where the Adelphi once stood. Um, and it's worth talking about Gay Byrne because he has certain claims to have been interactions with the Beatles that don't really stand up. So, for people who don't know who Gay Byrne is, um, in, in 30 seconds, the television, broadcast television came to Ireland in 1962. There was one channel, uh, RTE Radio Television, and there was a Saturday night talk show called The Late Late Show, hosted by Gay Byrne, which was a two-hour free-for-all, which he hosted from 1962 until 1999. Um, the closest thing to try and pick up somebody for kind of cultural appreciation, although he wasn't the exact same type of broadcaster, would be Johnny Carson. He was one of these people who just finagled his way into people's routines and lives, although he hosted his show for seven years longer than Johnny Carson did. But in the early 60s, as well as being an Irish broadcaster, he would also commute over to the north of England uh, to host a TV show on Granada Television, uh, which was the north of England ITV franchise network that ran at the time from Monday to Friday. Um, and he hosted a, he was one of the hosts of a, a show called Scene at 6.30, a 40-minute magazine show, which had a roster of presenters. I have a list here. Mike Scott, Peter Eckersley, James Murray, Brian Truman, uh, Michael Parkinson, Bob Greaves, Chris Kelly, and Bill Grundy, he of the Sex, Sex Pistols. Pistols. Go on, say a, say a, <laughs> say a dirty word, Stephen. Um, that I'm not, Bill Grundy. I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> what? I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you rotter. Um, so... Uh, Gay Byrne was also one of these rotating hosts of Scene at 6.30 on Granada TV and the Beatles appeared on there numerous times April 63, August 63 October and November 63 and in July and October 64 and there's a famous clip that you know people might have seen here which is Gay Byrne being interviewed interviewing the Beatles with Ken Dodd uh, uh, which happens just after the Dublin gig uh, was recorded on the 25th of the 11.63 and was broadcast uh, uh, thereafter and they mimed two songs but Gayburn's claim to fame is that Paul took him aside at this. Yes, so Paul takes Gayburn to one side and said, you know, you, we think you're exactly the sort of person who should be our manager. Because Gayburn says this was long before Mr. Epstein, Mr. Epstein was, on the, was on the scene. So yes. it was in their very earliest days, they thought Gayburn is exactly the sort of person we should have managing our career. How different his career could have been? Well, he, I've seen Gayburn being interviewed and talking about this, and there's footage of him unveiling the plaque, and he tells the story, uh, and he only unveiled the plaque um, 
yeah, shortly before his death, about well, three or four years ago. And this is this is when he reveals the story for the first time. I don't I don't think it's mentioned before well, that. I think he's I think he has kind of traded on it before, but he he says that yeah, um, McCartney said, uh, you know, please be our agent and get us some gigs and sort us out. Uh, this being in November 1963, which is hugely uh, unlikely, is kind of the nice way to put I, it. I think the word you're looking for is it's not true. <laughs> it's a total lie. So it's 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 a complete fiction. Yes, it's a complete fiction. We can say that. We can yeah. say we can say complete fiction. But you know, wherever um, you know, Epstein was already there. They were well established. They'd, they'd had hit records uh, long before they appeared. Uh, they were being interviewed by Gay Byrne. Yeah, and I I, I, I kind of went back to say because you know the, the famous some other guy footage that Granada filmed in August 1962. Gay Byrne was nowhere near that. So it's no. not even as if he was no confusing. To, no, no, he no, wasn't no, even no, mixing no. any and of those it, things. I, up. I, 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 Different times he has said it was Paul approached him, yeah. and it was John. So he he seemed to have some difficulty oh, telling. Why did we even mention Gay Byrne at all? Oh, I was a complete sidetrack. <laughs> um, but the interesting thing that you mentioned earlier on was that Ringo lived in Dublin in 1963, or yeah. did yeah. he? He did. He did. Uh, he was a resident of of Dublin. Okay, explain your uh, workings. Okay, well. Um, People seem to like legal diversions in these podcasts. You say that. Oh, you see? Oh, my God. <laughs> you see, it's not all about pop music. It's about the law, and it's... Uh, yeah, I, I'm worried about nothing as real as a Trojan horse for the law. It's. I'm, I'm working on a spin-off podcast. On, yes. Uh, all you need is law. <laughs> um, so this is, this is a short uh, sort of 30, 40-minute section uh, uh, called The Mystery of Ringo Starr's Driving License. Yes. So I'm going to, by way of introduction, uh, we'll go back to June 1963, specifically 11.45 in the morning on Seabank Road in Wallasey in Merseyside following the Beatles' appearance at the Mersey Beach Showcase in the Tower Ballroom, New Brighton. What happened? Paul got stopped for speeding. In a car, yes. Yes, uh, in a car. In a car, not a just car. for yeah. <laughs> speeding generally. So... So there, there, was, there was a newspaper report at the time, and it said, James Paul McCartney, 21-year-old musician of 24th Lynn Road, Liverpool, was fined £25 and disqualified from driving uh, for 12 months after he had admitted exceeding the speed limit along Seabank Road. Hmm. Uh, Alderman W.O. Hanford presiding said, it is time you were taught a lesson, Mr. McCartney. Yes. Um, he was also fined £3 uh, on two summonses for failing to produce his driving licence and his certificate of insurance within five days of being asked to do so. And uh, the documents were not produced until the beginning of July. And when asked why he had not produced them before, McCartney said, been on tour. Yeah. So. so he's he is taken off the road. He's not allowed to drive. No, he's not allowed to drive. So and he's he, being banned. And he does get a driver. And there's a whole separate spin-off conversation yep. of does that give him time to sit in the back of a car and write songs for the next uh, couple of months? But then we cut forward to um, Ringo publishes his book Photograph. Yes, uh, I don't know if anybody has this book. Um, Ringo published a book simply called Photograph. Uh, it was one of those very expensive books that the very nice people at Genesis, very if nice they'd like, at very nice people yes. at Genesis, if they'd like to send us some free stuff. Yeah. Um, very expensive books, but very nice, very nice books. And it's just a series of photographs that Ringo has taken. And for some reason, he has taken a photograph of his driving license, his 1964 driving license. Now, I, I had bought the cheap version of the book. Yes. There's a cheap paperback uh, version of the book. And I'd seen this, but I'd not particularly remarked upon it. But then, you know, we happened to be chatting with Mark Lewison. <laughs> we were who, chatting with Mark Lewison. Who's, who's, who's been on the podcast, a <laughs> uh, friend of the show. Well, he, this was a question he asked us when we, 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 we were lucky enough to interview him, which was, uh, 
hey guys, what do you know about Irish driving licenses? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, I, I think we provided some assistance, some research assistance well, to you Mark did. Lewis. Well, we do, I suppose we did. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 the issue is that this Ringo has an Irish driver's he license. He has an Irish driving license, and the date on that driving license is the 8th of November 1963. So that is. Why, the, Stephen, that's the date that they were in Ireland. Yes. That's interesting. So, mm. the, the, the mystery continues. And um, what address did he have on that? The address is he was living at the time mm. at number two Lower Hatch Street, Dublin. Hmm. So, we all remember when Ringo had his house in Hatch Street, which is across the road from the National Concert Hall. Yeah? Yes, yeah? yes. Yeah? So, okay. um, should we explain? Do you want to give a little bit of further legal background? Uh, well, I'd, uh, I'd like we to all want more legal information, don't we? So I'm going to talk to you now about the 1933 Road Traffic Act. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> See, we are fans of the Road Traffic Act. Um, it, the Road Traffic Act of 1933 no, governed yes. the issuing of driving licences mm -hmm. in uh, Ireland until St. Patrick's Day in 1964. So the 16th of March 1964 was the last day yes. that you could get a driving licence in Ireland without taking a test. Huh. So that meant... That uh, you could just ask for a You could just license. rock up and you didn't have to take a test, which is presumably assisted St. Patrick in driving the snakes out of Ireland? No? Boo! Um, anyway, <laughs> we'll cut that bit. Um, so, you just, you just turn up, you filled out the form, you had to be resident in Ireland, yeah. uh, you just pay a fee, and you could get a one-year or a five-year driving license. Um, now, if we look at this, we've done the research, if you look at this address, Lower Hatch Street was the address of Starlight Artists, mm. which was a booking agency run by a certain Paul Russell. Yep. Um, he also had a London office in Covent Garden near Cl Brian Epstein's London office, and Russell at that time was a reasonably high-profile person, and he was effectively the promoter yeah, of so the Beatles concert. He was Dublin. a successful promoter at the time, and uh, I've asked people who knew Paul Russell at the time. He was a promoter he was basically uh, any kind of act that was being brought into Ireland. He was bringing them in himself. So he, he was the Beatles' effective promoter in, in for the Dublin yeah. shows. He brought in people like Roy Orbison and the Springfields and all the rest. So can we assume that Ringo was sleeping, like in on a cot bed in the office, or what was the? Uh... Well, I, I think, I, you know, I, I'd hate to say, you know, I'd hate to cast aspersions on you know, Irish society at the time to suggest that anybody with the correct form and the correct address and the correct amount of money turning up at the correct office, you know, whether or not it was signed by a guard, that's a police person, um, uh, or not, uh, could get a driver's license. But I'm going to say that's exactly what happened at the time. Yes. Okay. Okay. You know? Okay. It has been known to happen. It has in been known to Irish happen. professional well, circles that being, things being, happen being under un the counter. Being unfamiliar with the <laughs> southern ways. Um, <laughs> I just assumed Ringo was living here, so I began to do the research, <laughs> and uh, I contacted, on behalf of Mark Lewis, a friend of the show, uh, <laughs> Dr. Mary Clark, who is the chief archivist mm. uh, of the uh, uh, public records in Dublin, because I thought there will be an original signed application form held in Dublin City Council archive, and uh, we could compare uh, the handwriting and the signatures, and we could get copies of that, and uh, we could get a credit in Mark Lewis's next book, and it would be just fantastic. And? They've destroyed all the records. Uh, I know. So we have no way of knowing what happened, except if you happen to have a copy of this book. Yes. So I don't know if anybody has this book. 
Uh, it's a very good book. It's quite hard to get hold of. Mm-hmm. Uh, I made the mistake of giving my copy away. Oh, uh, you seem to have a copy now. I've got another copy. Ah. It took me a long time to find a second-hand copy, but uh, give me a sec. Piers Hemmingson in Canada has Please. my copy of the book. <laughs> but anyway, and, uh, we go- should say for the viewers at home that the book is called The Beatles' Irish Concerts, and, and it's, it's by, by Colm Keane. Colm Keane. It's a very interesting book, and it's it's almost an R by R breakdown. And I'm, I'm just going to read um, a quote he has from Paul Russell. So what... Uh, he, he describes is that after the uh, Adelphi, second Adelphi show, uh, George, I think, goes off to visit uh, relatives uh, in, in Dublin. The other three go back to the Gresham. Then whenever George returns, they all go out on the lash. Mm. Um, they stay up all night. And as you would after a night on the lash all night, you get up at seven in the morning and go and get a driving license. So what he says is... I think I slept in a chair in the Gresham for a while, I'm not sure, but the Beatles certainly never made it to bed. I didn't have any sleep for a few days, so there was so much going on. There was giddiness. I guess maybe a euphemism for something. Mm. Uh, And everyone was on a high. It was the swinging 60s, and what tomorrow would bring didn't matter. But the following morning, Paul McCartney came to me and said, this is personal, Paul. I need a big favour. We need to get driving licences. We can't go into a driving licence office in England and Paul Russell says they couldn't go into one in England because they'd been mobbed and killed, not because Paul had been disqualified no. for speeding. Uh, the hysteria was at 110% over there, but not here. They didn't have licences, but they were good in England with Irish driving licences. It was 7 o'clock in the morning. I think they were still hungover from the night before. I had the car hidden in the back behind the laundry exit, so we went up to Gildare Street. You picture this in your mind. Uh, into the office. I had arranged for it through my contacts to open the office early. I think this chimes with what you've been saying earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had arranged it through my contacts, and I parked outside. I got a couple of policemen that knew my father. There you go. There you go. And they kept an eye on things. One was in plain clothes at the time. He was helping me to keep an eye in case people copped to the fact that I was there with a motley crew. The driving license people gave Richard Starkey, Paul McCartney, John Lennon, and George Harrison Irish driving licences to all four of them. Surprisingly, the story of the Beatles' late night and early morning revelries was never unearthed by the national press. Uh, Quaintly, in the context of subsequent media developments, journalists missed out on the scoop. But we've got the scoop. By reading Colm's book, we've got the scoop. (laughs) So they all had Irish driving licences. Thank you. (laughs) No point too small. And then Ringo goes and buys himself a car, a Fossil Vega 2 Coupe, uh, only 2,900 were made. He bought it for $5,570 and it was sold at auction in 2012 for 567000 You paid $567,000 yeah. for Ringo's I car. I did not, no. It's funny with his Irish driver's license, that's his whole position on Brexit and all the rest. But anyway, I know, that's not good. I know. Um, so uh, after the Dublin gig, where could they go next? Belfast. That's a good idea. So let's have a little listen to the Beatles in on the way to Belfast. Well done. Okay. Okay. She's still going. Yeah. <laughs> Watch out, Justin. Some other cars. Suicide. Yeah, anyway, that's, um, that's, that's the it, answer to the question. Yeah. It's yeah. very nice to be in Ireland, though. Both bits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Have you been in any way flattered by the hysterical uh, reaction of teenagers? Yeah, yeah. very flattered. It's been great. It was marvellous last night. And we hope it'll be as good tonight. You were very satisfied with the Yeah, yeah it was great. great. It was marvellous. The people are wonderful, you know. They're going to be six cars were arrested. arrested. We were locked in the dressing room, you know, when it all happened at the time. So I said to Paul, you know, what's happening? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, boys, could I introduce you to my barber? Yeah, kill us at the gag. Do you know you look like Matt Munro? <laughs> yeah. Give us a Russia with love. <laughs> Thanks, boys. <laughs> Don't talk about Russia. Thank you very much. And could you sign two pictures for Spass the Kids, which were given to me this morning? Yeah. Before you go, I couldn't get a chance to. Right? That's the Beatles there, and uh, at the seventh stop of their tour, took them from Dublin up to Belfast, and shortly after crossing there, that's them being interviewed by Jimmy Robinson for Ulster News, which was included on the Evening Bulletin, and you can watch it on YouTube. You can watch it on YouTube, and it's very funny, because there's at one point in the opening clip, uh, George, I mean, they're literally, they just stopped in the middle of nowhere. It's like somewhere outside Newry, I think, on a kind of (laughs) hill, and and, uh, George uh, gets hold of John and kind of pushes him into the path of a speeding car at one point. I mean, it, it could all have ended there. I mean, it's a very funny clip in a kind of slightly suicidal funny, yes. way. Um, they arrive in Belfast about two o'clock. They do a little bit of work um, for the BBC and they perform that evening at the Belfast's Ritz Cinema. Yeah, uh, on Fisherwick Place. Uh, don't look forward, it's not there. They're not there anymore either. Uh, closed in 93 and demolished the following year. It's now a jury's hotel. They yeah, realise that stayed in that jury's there hotel. Yeah, there isn't even a plaque. Oh, we got I mean, I have that. graffitied stuff on the wall, but it's, it's not <laughs> They did the same 10-song set. Alan Owen was still there. Did they get driver's licenses? Well, I, I, I don't think they... Uh, uh, I don't think we had driving licenses in Northern <laughs> Ireland in 1963. Uh, I, I feel... Is there anything else to say about their first Belfast gig? No. Oh, OK. No. Moving swiftly on. Uh, <laughs> uh, the next sort of thing that we're going to talk about is... Uh, a Hard Day's Night. Cause their there Irish a, film. Their Irish film, written essentially as a as a story about their uh, their Irish touring days. Pretty much. Um, but there's there's lots of odd... And I didn't really notice this when I watched it first, but when I watched it again about 10 years ago, I thought there is some odd little moments that... There's some very have. odd little moments. So, I mean, obviously, apart from the Beatles, the star of this film is Wilfred Bramble uh, from Steptoe and Son. Everyone knows him. He's very clean. He's very clean. Uh, so, Wilfred Bramble, born in Dublin. Yes. Um, and uh, his father was a cashier at the Guinness Brewery, and his, his, his mother was a former opera singer. But essentially, uh, he was at that point um, famous for being the dirty old man in uh, Steptoe and Son. Yeah. He was uh, 13 years older than ha- uh, Harry H. Corbett, who was playing his son. So that, that's the only, that, that was the age difference. But he, he is given some good, uh, good lines in, in the film, which uh, reflect this sort of Irish thing. So, so he, is, he is, at one point, he is uh, Lord John McCartney, I think is, yeah, is, yes. is a, a sort of filthy rich Irish peer. Um, and he is arrested uh, at one point. And uh, in response to the, uh, the policemen, they haven't actually arrested them, they're just trying to you know, think he's a bit lost, and he immediately says, I'm going to go on hunger strike. Yes. Um, you know, I'm a your, soldier of the Republic. He's I'm a soldier of the point. Republic, and then he stands up and starts singing uh, Nation once again. And you kind of think, would that have meant anything yeah. to anybody in England at the time? But you think this is Alan Owen is kind of working. Well, I know we don't have 
you know, some kind of historian here like Dermot Ferreter, but this is a kind of a very sort of pre-Troubles kind of Irish republicanism yeah. that presents. But yeah, when you realise that a nation once again gets sung in the middle of a hard day's night, that's a bit odd. It's a little bit odd. It's a little bit odd. Um, and then in the middle of... Uh, oh, actually, didn't Wilfred Bramble have a single? He did have a single. Right. Can we? Did we have that with us? We do actually have this with us. Now, now when did he put this single out? This... This was put out in 1971. Okay. It's called Time Marches On. Do we need to listen to all of it? I'll let you decide. This is Wilfred Bramble's 1971 single, Time Marches On. What a pity the Beatles have gone and split up. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair to look down the pop charts and not see them there. And no one denies that the length of their hair and their clothes set a fashion on such a large scale that most of the barbers were turning quite pale and the tailors were working their hands to the nail. Still, time marches on, as they say. It was autumn, I know. The year 62, and we heard the... OK, you thank the Great. Oh, well... Oh. <laughs> That's available on YouTube. Yes, it, it's it, yes. <laughs> we, so it's it's nuts. It's one of those insane kind of tribute things. Yeah. Like a gentle park life. <laughs> a, a gentle park life. <laughs> park life. <laughs> End of part one. Intermission. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. End of intermission. Part two. In the midst of a hard day's night, um, John and George take a holiday. They do. They do. Um, so this is at Easter time, uh, and they decide to go away with their respective partners at the time. Uh, John is, of course, married uh, to Cynthia. Uh, George is going out with Patty Boyd, at this, but that's a secret. And it must only be about two or three weeks that they're going out yeah. at this point. Yeah. So this is kind of their first. And they, they fly to Shannon, and they spend... Um, Easter 64 from the 29th to the 31st of March at Dromoland Castle. Yes. Now, have uh, anyone been there? It's, it's still there. It's a nice place. I went yeah, to a wedding It is still there. there. It's one of the few places that is it's still, still there. It, you can look for it. It's still there very at good. the minute. It is, a, it is a castle after all. You yeah. can really get rid of it. So, um, it's a very nice, fancy place. Um, and yeah, they, they kind of do a press. There, there's jungle. a press conference. So, of course, obviously the press find out they're there. They're very keen not to have Paddy Boyd's presence known uh, at the time. Uh, so they, the, the sort of quid pro quo is they arrange a photo shoot, get the press conference out of the way. There are see, photographs of them, sort of George and John reenacting a sword fight on the, uh, yeah, the, the steps, ramparts yeah, yeah. and the steps, things like that. 
uh, and there's a little clip again on on YouTube broadcast 31st of, 30th of March 1964, um, and it gives the impression that it's just. George and John are, are there. But on the way Just home... Just holidaying in their suits. In their suits. <laughs> yes. uh, John and George leave, and then Cynthia and Patty have to pretend to be laundry maids, and they climb into an empty laundry basket, mm. which is carried to the back of a van, and uh, they make good their escape. So it's essentially a hard day's night in real life. In the middle of a hard day's night? In the middle of Ireland. Yeah. Well, yeah. So gosh, the connections are just... Yeah, it's never irrefutable. Everywhere, yeah, you look, everywhere you look. Uh, if we skip forward then in time, the next uh, time they're on the island of Ireland is a second round of gigs in Belfast, which is the 2nd of November 1964. And they, they never play Dublin again. But they, they just repeat that. Which? <laughs> they never play Dublin they again. They never play Dublin again, yes. But they play Belfast. They play Belfast many times. Is many that what you times. want me to say? Many yes. times. I know. Uh, and there's a couple of really interesting things about the second Belfast gig, which, as I said, is the 2nd of November 64. It was supposed to have been a rest day, and it was being kept clear for a particular reason, wasn't it? It was. Um, so this, this, this day was when the Royal Variety performance uh, in London was, was due to be held that day. And Epstein, Brian Epstein, always held on to the idea that he would get them back on the Royal Variety show again. So they'd done that in 63. 64 comes around. He's deliberately kept this date, but they won't do it. They absolutely say, no, we're not doing it. Yeah, Lennon vowed to say he would never play it again. And it, it does create a what if, you know, because I think their, their, the Royal Variety show that they did do had such power that I think if they had done it again, it would have diluted that. It just wouldn't have been the same. I think so. I think so. Yeah. Um, but th- this seems to have been something that was asked year after year. Yeah. Constantly, they were they were being asked to, uh, to 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 do this. So instead, what happened was that uh, a couple of local promoters uh, in Belfast, uh, Trevor Kane uh, and George Connell, who uh, they had primarily been involved up to that point, I think, with uh, boxing. George Connell, in particular, people like Rinty Monaghan and, and and those sorts of boxers, he he promoted them. But they got in touch. They realised there was a date missing. Uh, Arthur Howes, who was the English. Uh, promoter, um, worked with, with Kane and Connell, and they made an offer. And what they said was, uh, well, twofold. One, about the money. Uh, the Beatles were offered £850 each uh, to come to Belfast for the day. That, that is equivalent to £17,500. Yep. It's almost as much as we're getting today. Mm. Um, but the big, the big draw, I think, was they said to Brian Epstein, we have an 8,000 seat venue yep. in the King's Hall in Belfast. Again, if anyone has been in the King's Hall uh, don't for look concerts for it, in, the, in the past, again, don't look for it, yep. it's not there. The front of it's still there, but the hall isn't there. Um, so they were basically at this time playing 2,500, 3,000 seat cinemas and theatres and things. So this was going to be the biggest venue that they had ever played up to this uh, point. And it is still the biggest venue they ever played in the UK yep. uh, and Ireland. Um, so they, they and they did two shows. And they did two shows. That's sixteen thousand people. Sixteen thousand people saw them across the course of uh, course of the uh, course of the day. Um, the tickets were one pound, which is equivalent to about twenty pounds today. Which mm-hmm. is that's a that's a bargain. You pay twenty pounds <laughs> to see the Beatles. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so they 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 fly over um, for the day. They arrive at Aldergrove, which is now Belfast International. Uh, airport. They're, they're, it's the usual sort of uh, 
you know, fans at the airport and signs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Trevor Kane, I, I, as I say, Trevor Kane unfortunately passed away uh, last year, but I was fortunate enough to meet him and speak to him uh, a year or two ago, and um, he has had a fantastic scrapbook and photographs. And Trevor Kane himself was a bit of a George Martin character, very kind of good-looking matinee mm. type. Um, but uh, he was driving a Mark 10 Jaguar, so he put them in the back of the car. I mean, all four of them are crammed into this car. Uh, and he takes them, said, straight to the venue. And from the moment they arrived, they were locked inside. And so there was no luxury about the place. It, the room that they were in was a place that we used to hire ice skates. <laughs> um, so a few journalists got to meet them, but they didn't hold a press conference. Very few people who met them face to face. They just flew into Belfast and flew out as quickly as they, they could. So this is very much a last minute squeezed into the tour uh, event. The one thing that is quite funny about the thing is he said there were over a thousand autograph books that people had left to be signed. So they're stuck in this room and they're just signing autograph books. But the King's Hall is owned by the Royal Ulster Agricultural Society, like a Balmoral show and big agricultural. And they have a visitor's book and they, uh, they said, would the Beatles sign this? And they had left this book which has been signed by presidents and yep. kings and queens and stars and cows. And <laughs> um, they, they lost the book. They couldn't find this book with all of these, you know, going back 100 years. And eventually they found it under all of these other autograph books. So they would just sign the books and throw the books in the corner. And they just signed this beautiful big book and just threw, threw it away. into the corner <laughs> as well. Um, so it was, it was retrieved. Um, the concerts that they were doing a year later, sorry, the songs they were doing a year later, Twist and Shout, Money, Can't Buy Me Love, Things We Said Today, Happy Just to Dance With You, Should Have Known Better, If I Fell, I Want to Be Your Man, Hard Day's Night, and Long Tall Sally. So now you're getting seven original, original songs. Three covers. Um, and yeah, the, the gross adjusted for modern figures is about 330,000 for yeah. that one evening's work uh, was, what they, was what they made. Um, the next morning, the papers were a bit restrained, saying, oh, Beatlemania is on the wane, maybe, but the Beatles yeah. are all right themselves. Um, no hooliganism, of course. Well, Belfast. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, um, so yeah, I think it's probably more reflective of the fact that uh, it was all quite last minute. Yeah, you know, and 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 they they just they didn't get out of the the venue essentially. And if you think about what could have been if you were on the Royal Variety performance that night, there was a Brian Epstein connection because Cilla Black was on the bill. You had other people like Morkman Wise, Gracie Fields, Jimmy Tarbuck, school friend of um, the Beatles, uh, the Cliff in the Shadows, Bob Newhart. Interestingly, yeah. was on the Royal Viator's performance 1964. Uh, Tommy Cooper, The Bachelors, and, and a few others as well. So. Yeah, they shouldn't. They, they made the right call. They made the right call. They, they made the right call. Um, and that was their last uh, performance on the island of Ireland. Yes. Um, but it wasn't their last appearance or in person on the island of Ireland, because now we get into the wonderful tale of Dornish, which we touched upon before, if anyone's listened to our episodes on Revolution, that, uh, well... Does anybody, does anybody listen to <laughs> the podcast? It was a cheap to shot to get a I, cheer. I just wanted to check. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm that kind of guy. Uh, yeah, so we're, we, we touched briefly on this. Um, so we moved to 1968, and uh, th this is a story about uh, John Lennon has bought Ireland. Yes. He is bought uh, in 1967 for £1,700. He bought uh, the island of Dornish, um, which is in uh, County Mayo Bay. Has anybody been to Dornish? No? 
No, there's a guy that I work with was was touring around Ireland uh, last year, and he 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 and his wife got Diverted. on a little little boat and uh, sailed around Dornish. So uh, and it's still there. Touched well. <laughs> Islands tend to do that. <laughs> yes. Um, and it's it's it, he it, it was owned by Yoko until 1984. It was so. Essentially, what happened was um, uh, Alistair Taylor, who is a sort of Mister Fixit character in the Beatles orbit at the time, uh, just gets a call from John and says, uh, I, "I want an island. Go, <laughs> go and buy me an island." Um, and he he had some criteria, which where it has to be no more than two hours away from London. What? Okay, Isle of Dogs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Isle of Wight. Um, so uh, Alistair Taylor sees this uh, newspaper advert for an island off Ireland. And uh, he, he, he sees this at the last minute, and he has to literally get on a plane to get to Westport because there's a public auction. And uh, he rings ahead, and they say, well, we only take cash. <laughs> it's the west <laughs> of Ireland. We only take cash. Oh, yeah. So... He, he kind of thinks, I, I don't have cash. The Beatles don't have cash. They don't carry cash. So there's a lot of kind of scurrying around. And he gets on a plane, literally with a big bag full of cash, yeah. uh, goes to uh, Westport, outbids all the locals. I imagine that was... They were delighted with that. They were delighted about that. Yeah. Uh, and he buys this island, sight on scene. Now, at this point... The Beatles are also seriously considering buying islands in Greece. And you think, well, why buy an island in Greece when you could have... Dornish. <laughs> Don't you mean the other way around? Why buy Sorry, Dornish yes, when you can have an around. island yeah. in Greece? Um, well, they the, had this notion that they were going to just buy an island together and live together, which yeah. is very sweet. Yes, there was an island uh, uh, off the coast of Greece uh, with four little tiny islands around it. Mm. And they thought, well, they could have a recording studio on the, on the big island, and then they could each have their own little island, and they could sell olives, <laughs> and the money would fund the purchase of more islands. Um, but uh, the British government at that time wouldn't let you take any sterling out of the country. So Dornish it was. Just like now. No olive trees on Dornish, <laughs> I think. Um, um, so, yeah, so uh, the, he, he's got this island, 1967. He's still married to Cynthia at this point, and he does go and visit the island in 1967. So that's really his first trip to Dornish. And uh, he, he comes and a local chap called, a local boat builder called Paddy Quinn uh, takes him out to Dornish on the day. He doesn't know who he's, yeah, who, who John Lennon is. Yep. He knows it's some strange person in an Afghan coat, which makes it sound like he's just come from the Sergeant Pepper, you know, <laughs> launch party yeah. shoot. Um, uh, and he, he actually says, it was only afterwards I discovered it was John Lennon. As far as I was concerned, he was a customer. Beatle mania and the swinging 60s had not quite reached the west of Ireland. Still well. hasn't, I think. But, uh, <laughs> hey. Um, so he says, I find him very practical and businesslike. He was completely in command of himself and interested in the logistics and cost of building a house on the island. He was worried about further erosion on the island. He was concerned that something should be done to prevent it. Um, he was very courteous, except, and it was all going very well, except uh, Paddy's dog Sandy mistook the Afghan coat for some kind of other dog <laughs> and uh, got quite aggressive, oh. apparently. Well, so there are plans that went up for auction for a house that was supposed to be built on Dornish. Yes. Uh, so, so from from this period, uh, there are architectural drawings and plans, and planning yep. permission, uh, all, all drawn up. And uh, but as a first step, he then got Paddy Quinn to build a raft and floated a gypsy caravan 
across to the island as a first step. Of course. That sounds very, very, very comfortable. So if we then skip ahead to the 21st of June, 1968, and this is John and George are in the studio in London. They're putting the finishing touches to Revolution 1, uh, which will appear on the White Album. Um, They're overdubbing brass and trumpets and things like that. And uh, George plays a, a, a lead guitar part. So essentially on that day, seven stereo mixes were made. Uh, a lot of work was put into this, and uh, but this mix was eventually discarded and wouldn't wouldn't be used on the album but the key thing is on that night George takes an acetate mm-hmm. away of this mix to listen to at home the next day he flies or to John Ireland. takes the acetate yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and he flies on the 23rd of June 1968, which is the second visit. And this time he's basically about a month into his relationship with Yoko Ono, yeah. roughly speaking. And uh, they visit uh, Mayo. They visit the Great Southern Hotel in Mulrani, which is t- uh, these days called the Mulrani Park Hotel, which we've talked about before. And uh, he spends one night on the island with Yoko in the gypsy caravan. Yes, but the weather gets bad and, uh, you know. The novelty wears off. The novelty off. wears off pretty quick. <laughs> and and so, the, so the helicopter flies them back uh, to uh, the hotel and they land. And uh, one of the locals makes a comment about about Yoko. I don't know what this means. Do so I have gonna to read ha- this? You're going to have to read this out because it, it's completely out of context. Her skirt was so short you could see Lewisburg between her legs. Well done. You obviously read that well. <laughs> um, so the press turn up uh, at the hotel, naturally. Yes. And start the big questions of the day is, you know, where's your wife? Who is this that you're with? Um, he, he very reticent. They don't really engage with the press at all. Uh, but they do engage with the hotel staff. They're, they, they get on great guns with the hotel staff. Yes. And uh, there's a report at the time that says... Um, the staff organized a concert in the hotel and uh, compared by Tony Chambers. I don't know who Chambers Tony Chambers, uh, there was the Chambers brothers who were performers at that time and I subsequently found out they went off to England and played the circuit up until the 21st century. As far there as you I go. Know. Tony Chambers was comparing and uh, it was the Malloy brothers. No. Or the Malloy brothers, or sorry, were who, the, the Malloy brothers are the group who actually went off to England to work. So uh, Dominic Grady who gave a selection on the bagpipes. There you go. Uh, Miss Peggy Jennings, the hotel receptionist. We'll come back. We'll come back to Peggy, to Peggy Jennings. in a second. Uh, she gave an exhibition of Irish dancing, and items were also contributed by the hotel staff. Uh, Mr. Lennon and his group were very much impressed by the singing of Danny Boy, The Rose of Tralee, by Mrs. Larry McGovern of Newport. Nice. Mrs. Larry McGovern. And then, later, Mr. Lennon played a tape recording of Revolution, which was just about to be released. So you can imagine they've had an evening of bagpipes, Mm -hmm. Irish dancing, and then John says, do you want to hear the new song? Yeah. Talking about a revolution? (laughs) But this was the first time that this recording had been aired in public, and it was the last time. Yeah, it's lost to time. It is a lost mix. So the people who were there on that night heard this song for the first time. No one else ever heard it. Acetates by their their very nature sort of degrade. So this must have made a huge impression. I mean, if we were there, you'd be thinking, this is fantastic. Well, we've got two uh, accounts that we can dip into. Let's hear them. Let's hear them. I'm I'm reading these, am I? I think you better. It was sort of top secret, recalls Johnny Carroll, former head chef at the hotel. A few of us knew he was coming, but we couldn't let it get out. I think it was shortly after the thing they did in bed together. 
No, it no, wasn't. It wasn't. No, it wasn't. That was a follow-up the year later. They came over with an entourage of about 15 or 16. I think there were seven. Yes. Um, a lot of them you wouldn't necessarily like to be associated with. They'd be up in the morning having champagne royales and the like. They were messy, and by the looks of them, I'd say they were on the how-do-you-do. <laughs> on the other hand... According to Johnny, Lennon was an exceptional gentleman who was nothing but gracious in his dealings. I met him on a number of occasions, recalls the 71-year-old. He didn't strike me as a star. I mean, he didn't overdo his fame. He was a very well-built man, and he'd no problem coming in and standing at the hot plate. (laughs) He'd chat away, but we were told not to overdo it. Back then, nobody had even heard of vegetarianism. Never mind how to cook it, says Johnny. So in many ways, that's what I ended up speaking to him so much. He had the whole Indian guru thing going on. But he'd come into the kitchen, no bother, and say, I'd like a bit of boiled rice with sweet corn or whatever it was. Um, And so on it goes. Uh, If the weather was fine, he'd stay out on the island so he wouldn't come in for his dinner. And that was grand, says Johnny. But if they did stay out, we'd have to bring them their afternoon tea. They had a helicopter and we'd send it over to the hotel to pick me up and another fella and we'd bring the tea over to them. I mean, they had a stove and the like, but we'd bring over the cakes and the sandwiches. I've never flown in a helicopter and I didn't enjoy that part of it too much. Altogether, Johnny recalls that Lennon and his retinue stayed for uh, five or six nights. No, no, two nights. Two at a point. Um, and then he talks about how he got uh, entertained uh, by band leader and saxophonist. So the manager at the time, Bob Chambers, closed the doors and we put on a bit of a show. Uh, he got up and did his bit in the Siege of Ennis or whatever. And he, was enjoy- <laughs> and he enjoyed it. It was very amicable. And I have to say, so was she, although she was quieter. That's uh, Johnny so, Carroll's recollection. So where was that? Johnny the Cook. Johnny the Cook. That inspired the Thin Lizzy song. That's Johnny not the a Thin Cook. Lizzy song, Johnny the Cook. Um, <laughs> so we're picturing, we're picturing John and Yoko doing the Siege of Ennis in, in, in a hotel. And uh, so Johnny mentions, you know, the Irish dancing. And uh, we have another recounting of the visit. Arguably, I think we can say that, you know, Johnny the Cook's memory was a little bit... Well, here off. we go. You know, he wasn't quite remembering things. But we have another uh, person. So if you remember... Uh, Ms. Jennings, the Irish dancing receptionist. Yes, She's Bridie. given us an account. Bridie. So Bridie decided to write a letter to Yoko in 2017, which was published in the Sunday Independent, Ireland Sunday Independent at the time. So um, just imagine an instrumental version of the Cliffs of Deneen playing in the background. That might help you. Dear Yoko Ono. It's quite formal. It is quite formal, isn't it? Quite formal. I've been meaning to write to you for so long. First after John Lennon was shot, the whole world loved his wonderful music. But I decided to wait 37 years before yes. putting pen to paper. Secondly, to jog your memory of May the 3rd, 1968. It was the 23rd of June. Yes. Both of you flew into the Great Southern Hotel Mulrani, County Mayo, now the Park Inn. The Beatles had purchased Dornish Island of 19 acres for the sum of £1,550 in Clue Bay. Well, it was John. Not yes, not John. Um, there was excitement everywhere. We all wanted to see John and Yoko Ono. After all, we were singing the Beatles' hit songs on a daily basis in our place of work. Obladi Oblada. Paul. Not out yet. Uh, Hard Day's Night. Help. I Need Somebody to Love. Solomon Burke. Penny Lane. Paul. Yellow Submarine. Ringo. I'm Happy Just to Dance with You. George. And of course, Hey Jude. Paul. Uh, and all, all, also, I think she's using her psychic powers here because Hey Jude wasn't recorded until July and not released until August. So. Yes. Uh, I worked in reception at the Great Southern Hotel along with Sal Scott, Margaret Nealis, RIP, and Pat Mannion. I reckon every Irish person knows somebody called Pat Mannion. Can I put that to the test? Everyone knows a Pat Mannion, yeah? 
good. Uh, we wore turquoise suits with white blouses and we looked a million dollars and felt good looking out from our reception check-in desk. On your second night at the hotel, an Irish night of traditional music was organised to impress ye. Tony Chambers from Newport played his heart out that night with toe-tapping music. I danced a jig reel and hornpipe. I wore a green pleated skirt with a white blouse and frills on the sleeves. John Flood, our head barman, um, filled some drinks for you. We lent a pair of flat shoes and you danced with us. You enjoyed yourself immensely and I think I'd be right in saying it was your first taste of Ireland's music and song. We could see it in your faces. Mm, I can maybe, imagine their expression. Um, a bouquet of beautiful red roses was delivered to reception at John's request for me, entertaining John for entertaining John my Irish dancing and soon the media were on the phone, the Daily Mirror, the Daily Telegraph and local papers all wanted answers to the same questions. Describe the roses. What did John write? I wish I'd kept the handwriting on that card. Well, Be- yeah. Because John wrote that himself. No, he, he was working in a florist in Mayo at the time. I don't think he was working in a florist. A few years ago, I visited John's Imagine Project in the Strawberry Beds. Sorry, sorry. Uh, what, sorry. That's Stro- the strawberry, strawberry Beds. Beds. I've had to explain to Stephen that this is part of Dublin, Stephen. Strawberry Beds is part of Dublin. I think this lady means Strawberry Fields in Central Park, New York City. Strawberry Beds forever. Yes. <laughs> um... Uh, I sat on one of the benches looking up at the apartment where you and John lived prior to his assassination. This is not a great letter. not a great letter. line. Uh, I sang again to myself, she loves you, yeah, 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 and I was 22 again and back in Mulrani, reminiscing about the time in my life and how lucky I was to have met John Lennon and yourself in person and learned so many of the Beatles songs. Every time I hear John Lennon singing Imagine, a tear comes to my eye as he was so special. And then I sing Let It Be. Oh, dear. Thanks for the memories. Uh, and that's a letter from Bridie, which is very nice. Very good. Um, the, if you can't afford the island, you can possibly afford the receipt for the island because that came up for sale. That's, that's, that's the best thing that you could <laughs> buy. Uh, so in 2008, John Lennon signed receipt for the purchase uh, at auction of Dornish Island, dated the 5th of May 1967, signed by John Lennon and Mark Paid, uh, plus two architectural drawings, uh, 11 other drawings, plans for the island's construction. Uh, he had plans to build uh, a recording studio and house. So... I'm thinking, was it John signed the receipt or would it have been Alistair Taylor? Probably Alistair Taylor, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, well, it, I'm it, glad I didn't bid on that. <laughs> Eventually gives Dornish, the, the, the hippies take over Dornish and then the buildings burn down and Yoko just that sells it that. off. That was the end so, of that. Uh, there is some suggestion, uh, I mean, I've read this online, so must be must correct, be uh, that, that in the year 1980, uh, immediately prior to his death, he was looking at the possibility of reactivating the planning permission. Mm. And uh, if, you, if you remember the starting over, Video, video yeah. It does feature a little sort of cottage on an island, and uh, so so they they did have notions. They of did have notions of, Irish of, of, of retiring to uh, to Ireland. Now you know, Stephen, we're having a grand old time today. I know everyone's looking at the clock, and we probably you know need to bring it into land. But there does come a point in every young man's podcast where you have to wonder uh, where is Donovan in all of this? Where is where where is Donovan? Where is Donovan? Where is Donovan? I mean, we 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 rarely get through anything about the Beatles without uh, Donovan. There is a Donovan Ireland Beatles connection. Is there? There is. Wow. So that's Sunshine Life for Me, Sailor A. Raymond from the Ringo album. Um, and Donovan's involved how? Uh, he wrote it. Did he? He played every instrument. <laughs> no, this is, this, is, this is a song that uh, George wrote with Donovan's help. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Uh, he taught him. Yeah, he taught him how to do it. Um, so th- uh, uh, George contributes this to Ringo's album in 1973, but it was uh, it goes back to 1971, and in March 1971, uh, the High Court rules in favour of Paul McCartney uh, against the other three Beatles. Boo. Boo. 
uh, and uh, Apple is then placed into receivership. Uh, George is, is, is very distressed at this. Uh, he takes time out and he goes to Castle Martin in mm-hmm. County Kildare uh, over the Easter holidays with Donovan. Donovan. And he's and there. And they write this uh, song. And in his autobiography, I Mean Man, I Mean Mine, George recalls composing the melody on an open-tuned guitar and adds that he wrote it like an old Irish, I'm underlining Irish, <laughs> folk song, a bit like country music. There you go. Donovan helped out with the lyrics and the music. The rest is history. The rest is history. And, that, and that's why we're here today talking about it. Now, we can't talk about the Beatles and Ireland without discussing the singles, the 1972 songs that um, that dare not be mentioned. But I just throw my notes over here. I have, <laughs> have to go and retrieve them. What, you don't want to talk about Give Ireland Back to the Irish and Sunday, uh, Bloody Sunday and The Look, the of, look the of the Irish, Irish, which I know you've made a medley of I've made them. A, I've made a dance <laughs> remix. Yeah, there's that song plus Wings' debut single, Give Ireland Back to the Irish. And there yeah. is an interesting John and Paul connection that John and Paul meet up in January 1972 in New York City to try and Patch things sort up. it all out. Yeah. Uh, they do, and uh, th- this this is uh, there. There is a sense, uh, sort of the story is, you know, that John and Paul are constantly at loggerheads, but they they, they do sort of reach out uh, to to uh, to each other to try and and uh, sort of bridge the gap, um, and then it, they both write songs in response to the Bloody Sunday incident. Yeah, the timeline of them meeting up in January at the end of January '72 corresponds with the the Bloody Sunday atrocities. And, uh, you know, that whether they discussed it or whether it's just in the ether or whether it plugs into a certain sensibility that the two of them have. But that seems to be. Yes, that seems to be. It's a common it's a common cause, if you like. I Mm. mean, it affects them. They're they're obviously both affected by this incident uh, very deeply. Um, They react in the way that songwriters will react by writing a song. I think it's very instructive as to their characters the, the the different approaches that they yeah. that they take so Paul's uh, uh, single Give Ireland Back to the Irish uh, is released in February 1972 it's written by Paul and Linda mm-hmm. for publishing reasons of course um, uh, and uh, they, they sort of record the track two days later uh, it includes Henry McCulloch has joined wings he's from Portrush uh, hey. so Northern Irish uh, connection there. Um, it's immediately banned by the BBC. Uh, goes to number one in Ireland. It does. Yep. Um, and uh, in Spain as well. <laughs> well, uh, there was things happening it there. Really, it really, it, 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 it seems to me, I mean, leaving aside sort of any political aspect to it, it's a very odd song because it's a kind of slightly jaunty, upbeat song. He kind of sings almost in a there's almost a kind of reggae lilt to it at one point. Uh, possibly even he's kind of doing a bit of reggae papa at one one point. Yeah. And, you know, the line, Great Britain. You are tremendous. That's, that's an but, odd And start. no one knows but me. Now, you, I've you heard this see, song performed in a different context, and that line has been changed. I can imagine. Yes. It's, it's a, a very odd. It kind of indicates, you know, he's not, he, he, he's appalled by this uh, th- this incident, and but he's he just can't kind of articulated in the way that Lennon just suddenly, uh, his response to that is, is on a much more visceral yeah. level. Um, th- this song, the McCartney song, um, just gets panned by the, by the, by the critics. Um, you know, Paul can't win 
here because... Well, it's interesting that Paul and John are doing the same thing, essentially, and Paul is, you know, John is kind of getting away with it, but his song is not... His two songs, Look at the Irish and Sunday, Bloody Sunday, are not very good. Well, I, I, I can't defend Luck of the Irish on any basis. You know, the world will just be one great big Blarney stone. And it's all very <laughs> Yoko singing that. It's not. I have to say, the song Sunday Bloody Sunday is a song that I, I, I do rate as a song. And I think, I think it's a very visceral response. That mm. album was delayed uh, coming out so that this song doesn't sort of hit the airwaves, I mean, to the extent that it was ever going to actually be played on the radio um, at the time. So it loses a little bit of the impact, but it's a very, very powerful song. And um, can I say I prefer it to the other song by that other band? You too. Uh, you can, but yeah. that's that's not news. Um, the Yeah, I, well, I look forward to spending a lot of money on a sometime in New York City well, yes, box this set is where I can well, actually it's, it's, enjoy the song once and for all. It's very interesting because, you know, if, if we're going to do 30 minutes on sometime in New York City, that, that's, a, that's a very odd album. And whenever they came up with the, the Give Me Some Truth box, they, they picked Angela. Yes. Um, so not the, not the song that was the single, with the word that we can't say, mm-hmm. not the Irish protest song. They went with Angela, which is a song about uh, sort of Black Lives Matter, civil yep. rights. And I thought that's an interesting sort of lead into a recasting of that album but um, uh, that's hopefully out next year hopefully out next year uh, and John had a form he did take part in a protest for Irish Republican causes in London on the 11th of August 1971 before he left for the US one of his last UK yes and I mean, he, part, he, he did they were doing these sort of little pop-up concerts in New York where they were they were turning up with acoustic guitars and singing for various causes and rights and he did appear outside British Airways offices in New York on a, on a protest as well so I mean it's something that certainly at the time he felt very strongly about um, but this was a time when he was feeling very strongly about a lot of things that he subsequently didn't pushed to yeah. one side. Yeah, there in the intervening years, the main connection with the Beatles have been solo concerts. We yes. had Ringo and his All Star Band in on the twentieth of August, nineteen ninety eight, at the Old Point Depot. Anyone there? Yeah, uh, I was there. I wish I wish I had mobile phone footage of that gig because I can ve- barely remember bits and pieces of it. You, you were so remind young. me that you Jack so Bruce young. was was in his All Star Band at the time. Yes, which I'd uh, it, I have to say, apart from the original lineup uh, with sort of Billy Preston and Doctor John and members of the band, this is the best lineup as far as I'm 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 concerned. So you had Jack Bruce, uh, you had Gary Brooker from Purple Harum, uh, Simon Kirk from Free. Yeah, uh, it was great. Frampton, Frampton, Peter Frampton, Peter Frampton, Sergeant Peppers. Peter Frampton. <laughs> From the Sgt. Pepper movie, Peter Frampton. Um, and that's Ringo's only Irish gig. As far as I know, date. that's his only Irish gig. I saw that gig. I went across to Shepherd's Bush the next week, and they could not give tickets away. I mean, it was just not selling at all. And as for Paul, he took until uh, 2003 before he played an Irish gig. Never played in Northern Ireland. Why would that be? I wonder. I don't know. You'd think people would have forgotten, people would have short memories for, for, for any, um, any 1972 singles from Wings. Uh, but he has played three times in Ireland. May 2003, anyone there? Yeah, yeah me too. That was my first Paul gig. It was pretty wild. Uh, 20th of December 2009 in the Point Depot again. Yeah. And uh, 2010 in the RDS outside. Yes. Well, uh, well you, you say three times, but he's actually played here four times. He's played four times. Yeah. Well, was anybody at his gig <laughs> in Vicker Street compared by Gay Byrne in 2019? I have here. Yeah. What does it say on your piece of paper? Uh, it says the gig held at Vicker Street in the Irish capital has been set up to raise money for the homeless in Ireland. It's been nearly a decade since the Beatle legend last took to the stage in the Emerald Isle. Who writes this stuff? Um, <laughs> 
McCartney was inspired to take part after a plaque was unveiled in Dublin by Gay Byrne, yes. commemorating uh, their playing at Delphi. Vicky, Vicker Street owner Harry Crosby decided to send McCartney a photo of the plaque alongside the suggestion he come and perform at his venue soon. He came back to me and said, Vicker Street is top of the list for his next concert. Yeah. Mm. Crosby told no. the Sunday World. Even so, it was only after a chance meeting between Crosby and Stella McCartney that the plan came together. I met Stella at a party at our artist friend's London home. He mixes in those circles. Yes. We discussed the Beatles' connection with Dublin and the homeless situation in Ireland and Paul doing a gig at Vicar Street. No tickets will be sold. Uh, McCartney won't be the only big name in attendance, but Gay Byrne will be there. So Gay Byrne Everybody and Paul McCartney at Vicar Street in 2019... Yeah, never happened. Never happened. Never had any hope of happening. Um, so that's the end it's of that. It's a lovely story. <laughs> it is. I think we're overdue another Irish Paul gig. So, Stephen, we're near the end now. So many wonderful memories have been evoked through today's episode. And as I said, we're getting near the end. Let's leave people on a, on a high. high. On What's a the high. last big Irish Beatles last interaction? big Irish what have you, interaction. What have you got there for Sorry, me? I've, I've just, just check your to, piece of I've paper there. my notes. That would be uh, Paul McCartney's wedding to Heather Mills in County Monaghan on June the 11th, 2002, which is a location he chose because his mother had been born in County Monaghan. His mother, he, he chose this because his mother had been born in County Monaghan. Uh, this is Castle Leslie. Um, this, was a, this is a sort of upmarket wedding venue and hotel. Um, it was a big secret. Mm. Until Nobody knew <laughs> until the, the, the kind of one of the scions of the family trotted down to the pub and gave a press conference saying, don't tell anybody, but they're happening next Tuesday, but I'm not allowed to tell anybody. <laughs> and then the press descended uh, uh, on the wedding. And they went back the year after oh, for the honeymoon, they? stayed in the castle, went down to the local pub, didn't buy anybody a drink. That was definitely Paul. Definitely Paul. Definitely Paul. <laughs> Um, so I, I think, you know, uh, with my eye on the clock over here, I think we've made a pretty overwhelming case that the Beatles are right. But I think we need to put it to the audience for a, maybe a final vote. So we're going to ask the question, are the Beatles from Ireland or are they from Liverpool? All those in favour of Ireland say aye. Aye. All those in favour of Liverpool say aye. Aye. Well, that's, that's conclusive. Uh, definitive, proof. absolutely conclusive. I, I think don't think there's be. anything else that, that needs to be said. I don't think so. Uh, and with that in mind, I think we need to wrap things up. I think so. <laughs> you said, yes, well, I'm looking at the clock. There's a clock we, over we, there. <laughs> we said 40 minutes and, and here, we are. here we are, still going. This is the, this is the magic. And um, there's a couple of people we need to thank. I want to thank um, Stephen Kennedy for obviously running this entire festival, which is great. Uh, we also, we also want to thank uh, the man, the legend that is our producer, Adrian Carty, is in the room at uh, the back there. Uh, so thank you very much, Ado. But most of all, and thank you, Stephen. Oh, well, thank you very yeah. much, Jason. Uh, but also, thank you all for coming out and being part of this great day and listening to us twitter on for an hour and a bit. Um, thank you very much for making all the efforts. So give yourselves a big round of applause. And on the off chance we're putting this out at Christmas, can you all shout on the count of three a big happy Christmas to everyone at home? One, two, three. We want to send you back to all the Irish Beatles records. Yeah. We do. Yeah. All those Irish Beatles records and books. And books. And all of them. And we're available in all the usual places. www.nothingisrealpod.com, the Twitter at BeatlesPod, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group that you run all the time, Instagram and all the rest. But thank you, everybody, for joining us today. I'm Jason Carty. I'm Stephen Cockrell. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thanks for being here.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, Nothing Is Real Pod. Dot com.